Well, isn't it good to be together this morning? I, I think most of you mean that. I do. I hope you've had a wonderful evening last night of rest and are excited about what's going to happen today. I kind of like these morning services. I, I really do because I know you want to be here. Those are the kind of people that show up on the morning services of any given camp meeting. And I feel like it's during these times that we can just kind of get real, let our hair down and be ourselves. I just kind of didn't. Anyway, let me just get to it. I, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. If you have your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 13. Let me give you a little bit of background, the reason why I'm here. Over, um, if you didn't notice, 2020 was a little bit different. And when you rely on traveling and you can't travel, you try to figure out other things to do. And so when 2021 was approaching, there was uncertainty of how the year would turn out, all those sorts of things. So I was talking to my team, and we were trying to plan just a little bit ahead. Because over the years that I've traveled, we've made contacts, made friends. Believe it or not, I have a few friends. And, and we want to keep in touch with people. And so we decided that I would, for the time being, as, uh, do a, a, a stream, an online Bible study once a month. And I said, sure, that'll be fine. I, I'll do something from Mark. And they said, no, people don't want to hear anything from Mark, uh, at least from me. They'd rather hear from you. But, uh, you know, so I had to figure out something else to do. So we came up with the idea of spending some time in the Old Testament because I don't know how it is with you, but I found myself not purposely, but somehow oh, ignoring is a strong word. So let me say overlooking some of the stories from the old. I believe, I'm not one of these people who think that you can just disregard the Old Testament. I think that's dumb, it's all one book. And if you wanna know what the Old Testament is about, it's a book about Jesus. I mean, he's found on every page. And just sometimes though, we get so focused in the new that we forget the old. So we decided to find some obscure passages from the Old Testament and try to find, there's nothing new under the sun, I realize that but try to find some truth that we can make new for our day in 2021. And so that's a result, this is a result of that first study. I was in Fayetteville, North Carolina in January um, as things began to open up again, and, and it was really interesting. I enjoyed watching churches get creative with ways to be together. And they decided that they would hold their revival services during the day, Sunday through Wednesday, so we had revival, you know, kids weren't in school, different things like that, from 10.30 to noon every morning, and I had the rest of the day to myself. So I was preparing for the first streaming Bible study when all of a sudden a song that I wasn't very familiar with at the time came on called Graves in the Gardens. Have you ever heard Graves in the Gardens? It's a song by Elevation Worship. They really do a good job. I, I mean, I, I love some of their music. But part of the song says that God, he, turns graves into gardens, bones into armies. I mean, it was just, it just captured. I'm, I'm a visual thinker, and when I heard that language, it got my mind rolling. And I couldn't help but think about 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. And what I want to do this morning is to just kind of walk through these two verses. 
Some of you are going to wonder where we're going. Let me promise you we are going somewhere. I invite you and, and really plead with you, please stick with me because I think by the time we get to where we're going, you'll be glad that you had. Uh, but 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 says this, Then Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. I'm not sure in your Bible study if you've ever run across a passage of Scripture or a story, and by the time you read that passage or those verses or the story, you're left wondering, why is this here? I'm not sure how you approach Scripture, but I mentioned last night that I believe the Word of God is the Word of God. I believe it's living. I believe it's active. I believe everything in it has something that God wants to communicate through to me so I can know Him more. So I believe there's a purpose for it. But sometimes when you read something that's disconnected, just kind of thrown in between two stories, and it's so outrageous, you can't help but wonder why. Has anybody else ever felt that way? Am I the only one? I mean, there are just those times. I mean, why would the story be there? What could it possibly mean? Does it have something to speak to me or to communicate to me in the middle of my circumstance? I'm actually sometimes left wondering, what in the world did I just read? And 2 Kings 13, 20, and 21 is one of those places. And as I said before, I just want you to see the picture. We're not going to do anything exhaustive. I want you to see the picture, and then I'll share with you what God whispered in my heart in hopes that he'll whisper to you as well this morning. Now, when you come to verse 20, the opening phrase, and Elisha died, that's pretty obvious. It's really interesting when you consider at the beginning of chapter 13, we read that Elisha was sick. And when you come to verse 20, you see the result of that sickness, his life ended. And you do realize that that's the way that all of us here today will go. Should the Lord tarry and, and not return, all of us will go the exact same way Elisha has gone. There are only two people who did not go that way. Do you remember those two people? Enoch kind of just walked right into heaven, just kind of walked home. And then we see that Elijah uh, was carried away. There was a, a chariot of fire. Anybody think about that soundtrack when, oh, come on, you're as old as I am. You're not dead. You know those, you know, those, you know chariot of fire and then whipped away in a whirlwind. Those are the only two that didn't go this way. But for the rest of us, this is the path that we will follow. It's pretty obvious uh, and so I don't want to insult your intelligence. Now, I do spend some time in Michigan, and when I go up there, I have to explain it a little bit more. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm a Buckeye. I'm from Cincinnati, and, and, and you're here. Well, anyway, I'm just kidding around. We see that after an exciting life, you could say in event field life, that that life came to an end. 
a punctuation mark was added to everything that he had done. The final chapter had been written, the final sentence composed in this incredible biography. Elisha died and they buried him. Again, it's pretty obvious. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time there. We watch as they place the prophet in the earth. This was intended to be his final resting place. You know, that's the way it plays out. In other words, it's where he was intended to stay. It's where his body would decay. Those processes would go on. He would return to dust, and it seems as though that process was already happening. In my mind, it may have even happened. We don't know exactly how much time passes, but now we see that his bones are exposed, or I believe only his bones remained. Elisha died, and they buried him. And it's always important to remember a little bit of context around the passage that we're studying. So you'll remember that this particular time, you could say, was a crazy time in the history of God's children. We noticed that they were divided. It's considered the divided kingdom stage. That means there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. God's people aren't all one. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And because of that, there are two kings, the northern king and the southern And literally, when you see everything that was going on in this time frame, they were spinning out of control. That's why many people will include this or say this is the chaotic kingdom stage. Because chaos had ensued. God's people had become idolatrous. Have you noticed that seems to be the normal pattern? They've gotten comfortable in their relationship with God. They become apathetic, and in their apathy, they begin to allow culture, the surrounding areas, the surrounding religions to impact them. Can I just say this? That's not only their pattern, that's our pattern as well. We get comfortable. We become apathetic, and in our apathy, instead of us impacting our culture, we're good at griping about what's going on. But instead of us impacting our culture, we allow culture to impact us. It's not only their pattern. When I say it's God's children's pattern, we're included in that. But that's what's going on. They're beginning to mix with other religions. They're bringing in other religious practices to the worship of the one true God. And because of this, we notice that God is allowing judgment to come upon his people. Again, especially throughout the Old Testament, we see that that's often the pattern. He uses different people groups all throughout the story to bring God's people back, to get their attention in order to bring them back to where they need to be. And when you start thinking about people groups, there are probably many groups that come to mind. Now, I've been very blessed. I've grown up in a Christian family. My papal was... uh, pastor in Wofford, Kentucky, Wofford Missionary Baptist Church for nearly 60 years without fame or recognition. I come from a long line of Baptist preachers. I'm the oddball. I'm ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. And when I said what I said last night, just so you know, I was only kidding. I don't mind Nazarenes. I just want to take vacation and go to Destin when everybody else is having General Assembly. If you weren't here, don't worry about it. But otherwise, some of you just acted like I really meant what I was saying. I was only kidding around. But I, I remember sitting in, in vacation Bible school at Papal's church. 
I remember going to Sunday school classes and children's church, and when I think about people groups that were really a pain in the neck of God's people that God used to get their attention, the first one that comes to my mind are the Philistines. Anybody else like that? I, I guess it's because when you think about those stories, David and Goliath, it's the Philistines. Samson and Delilah, it's the Philistines. He uses them to get his children's attention. But there are others as well. You'll remember the Hittites. You'll remember the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Parasites. I just do that to see if you're listening or not. You, you know, all those sorts of things. He, all these people groups that he uses to snap them back, to get their attention and bring them to where they need to be. And in this occasion, he's using the children of Moab or the Moabites to get a hold of his children. What was going on, we read about it, in the spring of the year. And how many of you love springtime? I, I won't spend a lot of time there, but I do. I love springtime. I'm not a winter guy. And the older I get, I'm 48 years old. I'm officially an old man. People will say, oh, that's middle-aged. No, it's not. 96? They don't care about anything. I try to get them... I mean, that's a little over middle age. I don't know that I'll make it. Maybe you will. I hope you do. But I'm just not so sure. You know, and the older I get, the less I like cold. And since I travel, I try to schedule in the south when it gets colder up this way. But like I've said already, in 2020, I couldn't go anywhere. So I happened to be at home in Cincinnati, Ohio for winter. And, and, and you know, typically, there's not a lot of snow there. We get more ice and things like that. We do get snow, one or so good snows, but, but not a lot. And this past year... They said, the news reporter said, that it snowed more this past year than it had since the 70s. Now, I was born in 72. So really, the years I remember are the 80s. Those are my formative years. I don't remember how much it snowed in, 70s, in the 70s. If it snowed more than it did in 2020, going into 2021, I'm glad that I don't remember it, and I hope that it never happens again. And since I travel for a living, my neighbors, I have good neighbors. I love my neighbors because when I'm gone, they take care of my lawn. When I'm gone, they shovel the snow. And since I'm never there, I never have have to shovel snow but this year I was there I'm trying to get you to feel sorry for me and you could care less I had to shovel in one week's time my driveway and my walkway six times and since I have good neighbors and they always shovel mine and they were at work I shoveled theirs too I hope that I don't care if we do have a pandemic if you live in the South, give me your address. I'm going to come and sleep in your basement, whether I'm preaching or not, because I don't ever want to have to deal with it. That has nothing to do with my sermon. I just wanted to get it off of my chest. But in the springtime, new life is beginning to appear. The grass is turning green. Flowers are beginning to bloom. Trees are budding. I mean, it's exciting. You're sowing your fields. You're sowing the crops. And this is what was going on with the Israelites. And yet, when new life was being sown, when new life was beginning in the children of God, that's when the Moabites would strike. They would raid the villages of God's children. And while they were sowing seeds for harvest, the Moabites were were sowing fear and we see that fear played out 
It seems as though they had the upper hand. We see it played out in a dramatic way in verse 21. So we have where Elisha died and was buried. Story comes to an end. We read now where the Moabites raid in the spring of the year in verse 21. So it was. As they were burying a man. Now I want you to think about this. There are certain things when you study a passage of scripture that you want to know. You want to get as specific as you can to, so that you can get on the message. And so when you read this statement, there should be some questions that come to you, your mind. So it was as they. Who are they? I mean, think about this. We, we read the action that's going on. We know what's happening, but we don't know who they, whoever they are, are burying this man. Could it be the undertaker? One would think that perhaps that would be a natural thing to be done. I know I'm using my modern mind, but someone had to deal with the dead. Perhaps if it weren't, wasn't the undertaker, it could be grave diggers, those that would open the earth be it in the side of the earth in a cave or something like that or if it actually be in the earth i mean someone had to dig that someone had to remove stones those sorts of things it could be the grave dig who are they are they broken family members you know that the, when one passes they leave some behind and it's hard to say farewell to those that we love so much. I mean, and it could be some family members who's mourning the of the passing of this dear loved one that they had loved so much. Maybe it's just mourning friends. I have found in my life, and maybe you wouldn't agree with this, but I think probably most would, there are some friends that I've made over the years that have become closer than some family. And when you lose friends, it's a hard thing. And maybe these are, folks, I'm just trying to get you to see. We don't know who they are. It's very vague. It's very nonspecific. They are, all we see is they are burying a man. Now pause there for a moment. Just as we don't know who they are, we don't know who he is. Does this bother anybody else? I mean, I really want to know, who, who is this man? Whoever he may be, we're not given any details of his life. I mean, we're not told what his age is. We don't know what his name is. We don't know anything about him. For all we know, he could be an older man who had lived a full life, and now the natural course has taken place, and because of that, his life is no more. But we're not sure. It could be a younger man. Someone who met with tragedy. Some freak accident occurred and now... <coughs> that's not COVID. I just want you to know that. That's called allergies. That's not COVID. Anyhow, but you see, we see that it could be some young guy. We don't know anything about him. All we know is that he's dead and they are burying him. So it was... As they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and put the man in the tomb of Elisha. So here's the picture we need to see. And it really illustrates the fear that has been sown in God's people. 
They, whoever they are, are burying a man, whoever he may be. They look out in the distance and they see a raiding band of the Moabites. The Moabite raiders, they're making their way and they get so frightened. They are so stricken with fear. They get scared so much that they change their plans. The mourning process is over. The funeral is no more. They decide just to throw the man. Now, I know it says that they let the man down, but the image really is that they throw the man. They want to get rid of him so they can get away. They throw the man, whoever he is, in an open tomb. Pause there for a second. Isn't that disrespectful? Oh, you're sitting there like it's not. That This is not the normal event of things. If you don't think it's disrespectful, let's take it a step further. I think it's necessarily improper. I mean, you don't just throw dead people on top of each other. Not typically. I mean, it's not the way you deal with the dead. If you don't think it's disrespectful or improper, I'll take it even a step further. It's immoral. You don't treat someone in this manner. But the fear is so great that they throw the man into Elisha's tomb. They get rid of him and then they run away. And that's when the story really takes a strange twist. And I've already said that we've read it together that it's Elisha's tomb. But we don't know that they knew that. On this side of the story, we can look back and we can see, but, but we don't know that they knew that. I doubt in their fear they looked at the names on the headstones or whatever it may be and said, this is the one, throw them in. No, that's not how it happened. This was just convenient. They had no clue, and we know that. Why? Because they ran off. But we know it's Elisha's tomb. Remember, Elisha died, and they buried him. This is where he had been. It's where he would be. His final resting place, where he would stay, where he would decay. That process was going on. His body was returning to dust, so much so that his bones are exposed. Or as I said before, in my mind, now his only, only his bones remain. And then, if that wasn't odd enough, the story really goes off the chart. Do you realize how exciting the Word of God is? Do you realize how exciting the story of God's people? This is our story, by the way. The story is exciting. Folks, Hollywood can't, you look for your entertainment and so many, Hollywood can't write this. But God can. Oh, listen, this just goes crazy. When his, whoever he was, when his body touches Elisha's bones, just like that, in an instant, he comes back to life. When his friends threw him in the tomb and run off, when his body touched the bones of Elisha, his life is restored. And then you know what? He's left there in the tomb. 
That doesn't bother you. I, I mean, we don't have anything else about this guy. As quickly as the story began, it's over. I mean, they just they, imagine what he must have thought. He's laying there. Maybe he thinks we don't know what it's like. Maybe he thinks he's in deep slumber. He's taking a nap or something like that. And all of a sudden, he's roused from his sleep and he looks over and he's laying next to a bag of bones. And I'm not talking about your spouse, but he sees this skeleton. I mean, we don't, did anybody, did he cry out? Did he have a heart attack in his life? Pinned once more. Was he left in the hole? Did anybody help him? Was he captured by the Moabites? Don't you care? <laughs> it bothers me. It really does, but this is it. His life is restored, and the story is over with him standing in the tomb. Again, I'll say it. What? Why is this story there? Why is it included? And like I said, I believe the Word of God has something to say to me on every page. I know that there's a message for me. But what's the purpose of this? Let me just, what in the world did we just go through? I think in order for us to really grasp what we need to see from these verses... We need to remember the context of this particular story. I, I, I've realized that where we mess up, the error in our study is, is when we come to the Word of God and we try to latch on to a passage of Scripture, a text, and yank it out of the book and try to make it stand on its own. You realize you can't do that with God's Word. Because when you simply try to interpret the book by the part, you develop bad theology. You come up with bad doctrine. That's where bad teaching comes from. Because when you approach the Word of God, remember, it's all one story. Scripture interprets Scripture. You interpret the part by the whole, not the other way around. So there has to be some context that gives content to, the, to, to, to what we have read together. There's a reason it's there. And I would suggest we have to go all the way back to chapter 2 to understand what's happening. Because in chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, we have the final conversation between Elijah and Elisha. And you'll remember the prophet Elijah. I mean, he's the one stood against the prophets of Baal, fire came from heaven. I, I mean, he's an incredible, we know that. And you'll also remember when you think about Elijah, that Elisha was his protege. He, Elijah mentored Elisha. It's probably not the best language. Protege is probably better because as a protege, Elijah not only taught him, but he cared for him. Elisha would be under his patronage, his, his protection. He would, he would, Elijah would be interested in Elisha's welfare, in his career. He was a student, yes. He was mentored, but there was a stronger bond than that. They'd spent a lot of time together, had done life together, and now we are privileged to hear their final conversation. Verse 9, And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask. What may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? 
Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. And he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. Now remember, Elijah had done that very thing. It was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. So there we have that final scene between these two prophets. And we see the heart. You really see the bond that they have when Elijah, knowing that he's going to depart, says to Elisha, what can I give you? Tell me, before it's too late, let me know. And this is where Elijah, Elisha says to Elijah, I want what you've got. And I can't take a lot of time there, though, but I want you to see that. I want what you have. I'm standing here today in 2021 because in 1987, as a 15-year-old boy, I was invited to a revival service in Norwood, Ohio, First Church of the Nazarene, invited by a girl named Lana. I went to the revival at the Church of the Nazarene because she asked me, and I didn't really want to go to church with her, but I thought, okay, let's think about this, Billy, 15-year-old logic. If I go to church with Lana, I can sit by her. If I sit by her, we might pass notes. If I sit by her, her knee might touch my knee. It's a big deal to a 15-year-old boy. It's a big deal to a 48 single, never mind. But anyhow, you, you know, it's one of those things. And so I went, and I never got the girl. That doesn't surprise you. But I saw those people called Nazarenes. I saw the enthusiasm in their worship, the excitement in their walk. And there was something about them that made me want what they had. And I'm afraid today, I'm not here to be negative, I'm not trying to be, but I'm afraid having traveled now for going into 24 years, I've said that, most churches I go to, if I were invited as a 15-year-old boy because a girl asked me to go and when I didn't get the girl, I'm afraid there's nothing about those churches or those people that would ever make me want to stay. We're losing something. Where is, let me just ask you like this. I, I'm not trying to be harsh, but do they want what you have? You do know the world's already miserable. They don't need to add the misery that we carry with it. Besides, we have a hope. 
We ought to live like that. I want what you've got. Only Elijah. I want more. I want a double portion of what you have. And Elijah says, man, you've asked something really difficult. And let's just say this. That's not Elijah's to give. You do realize that only comes from God. It can't be fabricated. It can't. That comes from God. But Elijah is God's man. And he had prophesied over things before. And God saw to it to be. And now he says, you've asked a hard thing. And, and he speaks. You get the idea that it's kind of prophesying. It's, it's kind of, he says, if you're here when I'm taken away, if you see it, it'll be unto you. But if not, you can forget about it. And I said last night that we don't be, believe as, in luck. But as luck would have it. I'm, again, I'm going to have a good time with you, do or not. As luck would have it, right after they have that conversation, it seems, the chariot of fire shows up. They're separated, and Elijah is whirled away, and Elisha saw it all. So he grabs that mantle that had fallen from Elijah, walks over, strikes the water, and the water is parted. It seems to confirm that something is going on. But remember, he asked for a double portion when he walked through. Now, the sons of the prophets say the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. It's a double confirmation that he's getting this double portion that he requested and God has granted. But we have a problem. How can you, looking back, how can one determine the amount of blessing, the portion of spirit that someone walks in? I mean, now, when we do life together, it's pretty obvious how much of the spirit rests upon you. I mean, if we just see each other from time to time, maybe not. But when you really do life with one another... The real you, the real me, is going to show up. I mean, I could ask your spouse and find out how much of the spirit you walk in. I could talk to your children, and they could tell me about you, mom or dad, your grandchildren. When you do life together, it can be obvious. But when you're on this side of the story looking back, how do you determine whether or not he really got what he asked for? How do you know the portion of spirit that these men walked in? There's only one way in my mind that you can do it. I'm obsessive compulsive. I can't help it. That makes me analytical. I get on my own nerves. So if I'm getting on yours right now, it's okay. I expect it. Doesn't bother me one bit. It's what's going to happen. The only way I know is to compare the times that God moved through Elijah's life undeniably. And of course, there'll be different counting methods that different people will use. But I'm talking about undeniable times. Fire from heaven. The rain comes. All these different times, you know. You're going to get eaten by a dog. Those, those kinds of things that he did. Up against the times that God moved in those ways in Elisha's life. And to compare the two and to see whether or not it bears out in a double portion. And when you look at Elijah's, and there, there are different counting methods and there's always somebody that wants to prove someone wrong. So if you would like my study, if you'd like my chart, different things like that, I'll share that with you later. I'm happy to do that. But the way that I see it, and many scholars, I'm not one, so I look at them, they would agree 
that there are 14 major events, undeniable times in Elijah's life that God moved through him. 14 times, it cannot be mistaken that God used his man to accomplish his work. So if Elijah had 14 times, if Elisha received a double portion, one would assume 14 and 14 is 28. You'd assume that you would find that there were 28 undeniable times that God moved through his man, Elisha, when it cannot be disputed, it cannot be denied. But see, here's the problem that we come to. When you read in chapter 20 that Elisha was sick, chapter 13 and chapter 13. When you read that Elisha was sick, and then you see in verse 20 that Elisha died, there are only 27 miracles that are recorded. And you say, well, that's good. That's not double. Well, that's pretty close. Hey, I have a God who doesn't operate in pretty close. Just understand that. So there's only one way to say it. Being buried, placed in his tomb with 27 miracles, he didn't get a double portion. The request that he had made of God through Elijah wasn't granted. He did not get a double portion. Only 27 miracles occurred, not 28. Can we be real for just a moment here? I wonder how many of you would admit that there are times in our lives as God's children that we believe that his promises will never be. I mean, we study the word of God we believe every promise he made in his word he will keep, and yet we see some things not being fulfilled. And then, even some of us, based upon the word of God, God might whisper a promise in our heart. And I'm not talking about that you just pull this promise out of midair. If you think you've got a promise from God that's not based in his word, that doesn't line up with scripture, I'm going to help you out. You don't have a promise from God. But there are some of us that hold on to those promises. We pray. We wait, we believe. We claim those promises. We pray, we wait, and we believe. But the more we pray, the, the farther it seems away. Perhaps you have children and you've raised them in the way they should go. And you're holding on to that promise. If you train a child in the way they should go, when they get older, they'll not depart from it. And you realize that doesn't guarantee their Christianity. You understand that they have a free will just like you do. But you hold to the promise knowing those times that you had them in children's church, those times that you had them in vacation, Bible school, in youth group, in Sunday school, all these seeds that were planted, memory verses, little childhood songs that we sing, all these things that one day, whatever life that they're living, when they're driving down the road, sitting at a red light, all of a sudden, even though it's country music playing, in their mind, one of those songs begin to go through their head. You believe as they're laying in the darkness of their world, in their room, wherever it may be, that those seeds will begin to spread 
spring forth and they'll recall the memory verse and God will use all those things. But the more you pray for them, the farther they seem to go and the harder they become. And you begin to wonder, will it ever happen? We pray, we wait, and we believe, but it seems like it's never going to happen. And I want to say to you this morning, Saturday morning, the first Saturday of Psyker, it's not over. Oh, you're not getting this. It's not over. Come back to the text. Back to the story. Elisha was promised a double portion, and he didn't get it. He died at 27 miracles. But here's the wonderful thing about an eternal God, the God that is. Remember, that's what Dr. Van Zandt has been saying. Even though Elisha died, God's promise did not. May I encourage you this morning that God doesn't forget. Nor does God lie. He is always faithful. He will always keep his word. He will have the final say. Elisha died and they buried him. Years pass as he's in his final resting place where he would stay, where he would decay, where his body would return to dust. That process was happening. The promise seems to be buried with his bones. And now we see that's all that remains, 27 miracles, until some guys... Bury a guy. Whoever he is, whoever, don't you see, maybe that's not what matters. Don't you know, maybe that's not the whole point of the whole thing. Some guys bury a guy, and when his body touches Elisha's bones, he comes to life. What's the big deal? That's 28. Oh, I expected a better response than that. Got so excited, my glasses fogged up. Folks, that's 28. Why does it matter? Simply put, God's promises are true. Hear me on this. His word will never fail so believe him hear me believe him he means what he says even when years pass and it feels as though the promises have been buried deep don't you dare ever give up don't you ever quit on him keep believing you might not even see it happen in this life but through the eyes of faith you can see. Isn't that an odd story? So strange with a powerful truth, timeless truth. God is faithful. So Jesus, this morning we trust in your faithfulness. 
For each person that's here, there's likely a promise represented. Some, perhaps, that we haven't heard about, haven't told anybody. You've given it and they're holding on to it. We believe your word and we're holding on to it. And yet, in the mess of living, we become discouraged when our eyes contradict our heart, when everything around us tells us differently than what you have said, we begin to wonder, would you encourage us today? If there's one here who's at that point of giving up, thinking it might not happen, oh, give them a re-energization, just do something in them today to give them a determination not to quit. I wouldn't presume to know. You do and they do. So as they respond, do in their lives.